Parenting for me is one of the most rewarding jobs I've ever had. I feel like it's the most rewarding job on earth. It's also the most challenging. Every single child, every single teenager, every single one of us has a need to be seen first and foremost by our Heavenly Father. But we also have a need to feel seen by those that we love and those that we do life with. Well, good morning, uh, Community Lincoln Park. As has already been acknowledged, it is cold in here. Uh, from what I understand, um, Lincoln Hall has a set rotation for their airflow. It's the summer. I think their air conditioning was already scheduled to be on. We're working on it, trying to get it. But let's just all go ahead and make an agreement right now that we are in Chicago Bears rules for survival of the rest of this service. So if you just want to like, even now, do a little rub on the arms, like get your legs if you need to stand up, if you need to walk to the bathroom, but you don't have to go to the bathroom, you just need a, like a lap to warm up. It's totally fair. Um, listen, so we're going through U Plus Parenting. This is week five. As Jenna said, we've been covering a lot of ground. If you want to go back and look at any of these uh, previous messages, we've talked about how in order to enter the kingdom of God, you need to become like a child, just the gift of kids in our lives. We've talked about mental health. We had two really great weeks with Dr. Chinway Williams, who's a psychologist who specializes in adolescence, talked to us about just engaging the mental health crisis right now as parents, even the mental health crisis for ourselves. And then last week we talked about friendship, right? Talking, exploring what it means to help our children to find good friends and how to even become good friends ourselves. This week I want to kind of come to the close uh, with a topic that we haven't talked about yet, which would make a ton of sense to talk about if you're talking about parenting, and that's trying to get your kids to obey you, right? This is the fundamental crisis of every parent. Every parent desires for their child to obey them. And yet, if you've just spent time around children, let alone if you remember your days as a child yourself, you may be aware uh, a parent trying to get a child to obey is one of the hardest tasks imaginable. So I have a few fun photos. If you want to do a deep dive online, uh, there's all kinds of incredible memes, blog posts of parents trying to parent, toddlers especially, and having it go terribly wrong. So this one is a photo that was captioned, all I tried to do was get my daughter not to lick the window on the bus uh, that we were on. Apparently I'm a terrible parent, right? Uh, this one I love and resonate with regularly. Uh, this parent said, all I did was put the straw in the Capri Sun. Apparently I'm a terrible parent. The drama especially. It's not just like meltdown, it's head down, it's arm up, right? The pacifier has been flung, like she's ready. Uh, this one is great. Uh, this parent said, all we did was tell her she couldn't fly the balloons herself uh, at the balloon festival we were at. Apparently I'm a terrible parent. And then, okay, here's, here's my last favorite one. This parent said, all we did was introduce him to Bill Murray and... <laughs> Uh, apparently, I'm a terrible parent, and of course, Bill Murray himself is very distressed uh, by the child's distress here, too. Um, so what's going on here is we try to get our children to obey us. Well, there has, in fact, uh, I would suggest to you this morning, there has, in fact, been a problem in parenting in the last generation that in trying to get our kids to obey us, we have communicated to our kids that really the heart of their relationship with God is also a God who wants them, as children, to obey God. Uh, what do I mean by this? There is a big, massive study that came out in 2005. I'm going to show you the book cover. It's an awesome-looking 
2005 uh, vibey book, right? It's a little bit old now, but it's called Soul Searching, and it was by this guy named Christian Smith, who is a sociologist out of Notre Dame. He did this huge study across the nation, never been done like this before, where they had in-depth interviews with over 3,000 teenagers to explore the religious life of teenagers, what they did when it came to church, and what they believed as a result of it. They found a number of surprising things, but one of the biggest surprises that Smith talks about is that he says, actually, more teenagers in 2005 are going to church than you'd think. Uh, His estimate, based off of the research, was over 60% of teenagers are participating regularly in church. So 2005, uh, now those 2005-year-olds are my age, right? We're in our 30s. These are millennials. Millennials grew up in the church. We were all going to church. There was a ton of us who had youth groups, church services, something like it. Yet as Smith explores these teenagers, he notes the more they participate in church, something strange is happening. Instead of these teenagers articulating Christian beliefs, instead, all their responses tended to sort of orbit around these five convictions that I've got up on screen. And his uh, revelation, his insight was that he said, I don't think these beliefs sound that much like Christianity. I think instead we could probably call these beliefs moral therapeutic deism. Let me unpack these for you. He says, first, uh, teenagers he's talking to, mostly all were agreeing that it seems like there's a God who exists, who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. That's great. Uh, But then most of these teenagers said their sense from church was God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and really any other world religion, right? But then here's where it gets a little more interesting. The central goal of life is to be happy and feel good about oneself, right? This is kind of what they're learning in the youth group. Uh, Further, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life, except when God is needed to resolve a problem, right? This is kind of crisis faith management. Like, God is there, but when something really goes wrong, God needs to get involved. And then finally, just a general sense that good people go to heaven when they die, right? That's kind of what teenagers were reporting to Christian Smith as he's asking them about what they believe. So his summary there, moral, is the sense in which youth groups were training students to believe they really needed to be good people, right? God wanted you to be a good person. Therapeutic because if you are good, well then God is going to help you out, right? This is kind of the like give and take of the faith that's being learned. Just like be a good person and God is going to show up. And and then deism, kind of the sense that like definitely there is a God Uh, A lot of us believe in God, but he's mostly over here. Uh, He's kind of removed and far off. Sometimes in a big crisis, maybe it's time to start praying, Uh, but you really don't need to be too worried about God until you die. Now, as I walk through this study, the heaviness to me is that uh, as someone who grew up in the youth group in the early 2000s, I would unfortunately look back and say, "I, I don't think this is that far off from the general sense of what I experienced and what I saw in friends around me, right? Generally, to be a Christian had this idea that you should probably be good, God will hopefully help you out if God gets that involved in anything before we die. Now, if that's true, what's happened since is that as we grew up and went to college, and as culture started shifting, especially, the problem with moral therapeutic deism is that if the culture starts shifting what good means, what it means to be good, then 
suddenly maybe Christianity, maybe God, maybe the Bible, maybe yourself can start shifting as well. Either you're no longer as good as you thought you were, or now maybe goodness means something else. And so your faith gets really strained as you're like, how do I navigate what is good anymore? Uh, Therapeutic, the problem is that you hit college, and all of a sudden some disaster strikes. I mean, this could be as real as a breakup, this could be uh, a betrayal, or this could be all the way up to like family members dying, unexpected suffering, life is not going as well as you thought, and suddenly God feels a bit like God has betrayed you, right? God hasn't given you the blessings you thought were going to be there if you were just a good person following God. And then that deism, I mean, it kind of leaves you when the culture shifts, when your college strains you, when relationships are hard, leaves you just with this sense of like, maybe God is give or take. You know, what's the point of really going to church, especially if the church starts looking broken and hurting? The result has been a stat I've been highlighting over and over again these last few weeks. Uh, the result has been a bit of an exodus since 2005 of millennials who have started to leave faith behind. Now, that's not everybody. And I don't think every person who grew up in the youth group had this experience. I also, just to be really clear and fair to you, like, I love the people who served me through my youth group. Like, the, the youth group workers, the youth pastors, these were very good people who were doing everything they possibly could to wrangle teenagers on a regular basis, right? I I don't think that's actually the problem here. But as I've been wrestling with this, I have been wondering myself as a parent, is this Christianity? And am I going to step into the same mistakes to form basically in my children the belief that they should be good, that God will help them out if they follow God, and that God is, you know, he's there, but hopefully, like when you die, that's when God really gets involved. Uh, Is there any other way as a parent to form and to shape our children? Obviously, I think there is, and in order to make that case to you, uh, I want to take you to a passage in the Old Testament in the book of Deuteronomy. If you have a Bible, you can open up to Deuteronomy 6. We're going to have it up on the screen for you. Um, And I just want to set up this passage before I even put it up on the screen. Uh, Why go to Deuteronomy to answer this question, right? Why do an exploration of the book of Deuteronomy when we think about parenting? Well, Deuteronomy, if you sort of look back in your Bible, is the fifth book of the Bible. It comes after all of this intense stuff that's been working out with Israel and God and Egypt and Moses, right? You remember some of those stories? So God comes to Egypt, rescues Israel, brings them miraculously out of the land, and almost immediately Israel starts to grumble and complain, right? As soon as they get in the wilderness, Israel's like, God, we don't really trust you. This seems pretty hard. We're not sure we really like this. And so as they grumble and complain, it comes to this pinnacle moment where they're waiting right outside this land that God has promised them. Israel sends spies in to go check out what it's going to take in order to enter this land. And these spies come back and say, man, there are some big people (laughs) waiting for us. There are some strong armies. This is going to get really difficult, and the people of Israel go, oh, we're out. God, this looks way too hard. Like, we don't want anything to do with this. This feels overwhelming, and God says to them, you now are going to have to wait until you can enter this land for 40 years. Israel wanders and waits. All that sets up the book of Deuteronomy. This is where I'm going with this. Deuteronomy is written after 40 years of waiting, by Moses, who comes now to give 
a sermon to Israel to set them up. They're actually waiting right there on the edge of the promised land. They're facing the same moment a second time. And the question is, what is Israel going to need if they are going to enter into this land, if they're gonna actually face into the challenges and the complexity they've got. This is a Ted Lasso moment, right? Moses is Ted Lasso. Uh, it is a pep talk in the locker room. This is what you're about to hear. And Ted Lasso is about to give the like, whole purpose for why Israel exists and how they're going to enter the land. And this is what Moses says to them. Here we go. This is uh, Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 to 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strengths. These words that I'm giving you today are to be in your hearts. Now, here is the provocative case I want to make to you this morning. I'm going to put it up on screen. I think when it comes to parenting, it's going to be so important for us in this new generation, whether you've got grown parents, whether you're getting ready to become a parent, whether you have kids now, or whether you're just thinking about how you were parented yourself. It's going to be so important for us to embrace that learning to love God is more important than learning to obey. I'm going to put that up on the screen. Let me say it one more time. Learning to love God is more important than learning to obey. Now, at this point, if I was a youth pastor back in the early 2000s, the flood of emails from parents would be coming in. You guys don't email me. I really appreciate it. Uh, nobody's been <laughs> complaining the last few weeks. It's been wonderful. Uh, but if you were a parent in the early 2000s, you'd be a little agitated by what I just said because it doesn't quite feel right. It feels a little bit unsteady, a little nerve-wracking, like learning to love is more important than learning to obey. Uh, how could this be good parenting advice, right? For instance, uh, the responses I anticipate I would have heard is something like, listen, if you don't force a child to obey God, well, then they're going to think they can do whatever they want, right? Like, they're just going to think they can do whatever they want if you're not focused on obeying. They need to know how to obey God. Another response might be, if you don't force a child to obey God, how are they ever going to know about sin and hell and judgment, right? These very firm, hard beliefs in the Christian faith. They're going to think they can do whatever they want. Or maybe here's my last one. If you don't force a child to obey, then how are they ever going to learn to be a good person when they grow up, right? If you're not telling them this is what God requires of you, how are they going to learn? Uh, I love, uh, recently, Jenna uh, is on TikTok more than I am. I'm almost never on TikTok. Jenna finds all these gems, and I get to benefit as a result. I'm very thankful for Jenna's hard TikTok excavations. She recently uh, shared with me she recently shared with me this wonderful video of a woman in her 30s who said uh, her father approached her and asked her, I have a question for you because you're an atheist. If you don't believe in God, why don't you go around lying, murdering, and stealing all the time? And the woman with like perfect comedic timing kind of pauses and looks at her screen and says, you know, the more I've thought about it, the more... I'm glad my dad does believe in God. I mean, imagine what my dad would be doing right now if he didn't believe in God, right? My dad would be lying, he'd be murdering, he'd be stealing all the time. Like, good thing my dad believes in God because apparently my dad otherwise would be this total psychopath. Now, to just be clear, um, I thought that was great uh, because on the one hand, I actually, I do get what her dad is saying, right? It's not fair or it's not unfair to ask 
someone who does not believe in God, hey, what is, what's the reason? What's the order, right? What's the structure of the world we find ourselves in? Why do you think something is good versus something that's not good? But on the other hand, on the other hand, right, I, I think her point is valid that sometimes Christianity has been presented as primarily an act of obedience to a God that requires certain strictures, laws, commandments to you. And the result, ironically, is that it almost is like we're trying to train our children to get to this point, or maybe even, ironically, like we ourselves are sort of suggesting to the broader culture, you know, oh man, like, good thing God exists, because if God didn't exist, I'd be doing so much stuff. Like, you have no idea how much stealing I'd be doing. You have no, I'd just walk across the street whenever I want. I'd go up and push someone over who's in a walker. You know, like, I would do crazy things, but like, God, obviously, is holding me back. Is that the kind of Christian faith that we want to cultivate in ourselves? Is that even what the Bible is saying as we sit in this passage from Deuteronomy? I think as we return to this passage, I want to walk you through these uh, three verses. Each verse, I think, gives us a principle that we could follow in parenting of shifting from obedience first as the primary objective of Christian faith and formation to shift instead to loving as the primary objective of Christian faith and formation. So let me give you these. And listen, I'm, I, I know I'm like stepping on toes a tiny bit. I sometimes like to step on your toes just a little bit to ruffle you up on a Sunday morning. Uh, I also know this is really hard and big and sweeping, and so I'm not going to be able to cover everything. I know with one teaching, uh, I'm not going to be able to unpack what this would fully look like. But let me give you some hints and suggestions, especially that this passage is going to offer us. So let's turn to verse 4 here. And I'm going to just observe to you, in verse 4, uh, it's kind of a densely worded, weirdly English-sounding verse. So I'm going to need to get into a little bit of the Hebrew to give you some of what's going on here. Uh, this verse is, interestingly, one of, if not the most important verse to Jewish faith today. If you were to spend any time in a Jewish community, you would hear traditional or Orthodox Jews repeat this verse every morning— and every evening. They say it twice a day. It's the only verse that they repeat that regularly. And the verse says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It's called the Shema. The Shema. Do you want to say that with me? Shema. Great. It's gotten a little warmer too, so I feel like you're all, you're all a little more relaxed. This is great. Uh, so Shema is the Hebrew word for hear, and yet I think our English sometimes makes us think the start of this call, hear, Oh, Israel, is kind of like eighth grade chemistry, right? Where the teacher's like, listen up. This is on the test. Like, you need to know this. It's more helpful, I think, with this word Shema to understand that hearing in Hebrew thought is always very experiential. It's always very oriented towards encountering and responding to whatever is being shared to you. So there actually is another translation for this, the Greek and the Latin, as they sort of work out this verse, are going to use the word behold, O Israel. Behold. And the question then is, what is it that Israel is meant to be hearing or beholding, right? So the second half of the verse, the next line, is behold, O Israel, the Lord our God. Now, the Lord in Hebrew is the word Yahweh, Yahweh is the personal name of God revealed to Moses in the burning bush. Uh, Yahweh is 
I am who I am, right? If you've ever seen that verse. This is God's particular and special revealing of God's self to Israel. This is me. I am God. My name is Yahweh. Yet the second word, our God, is the word Elohim. It literally says Yahweh, Elohim. Uh, Our God can be just the generic term, God, uh, but it's interestingly plural, and the English gets it very accurately here, that in its plural sense, what Israel is being invited to say is that Yahweh is our God, right? It's this personal uh, possession. It's claiming, I have relationship to Yahweh, and Yahweh is my God. Finally, the verse says, the Lord, Yahweh, again, is one. Now, one feels like a mathematical number. It's kind of a flat English word. In Hebrew, one is very expansive. It's meant to orient us towards sort of this primordial essence, right? It's this structure and foundation of all of existence. Oneness is, is everything. It's fullness. It's, it's explosive. It's powerful. And yet oneness also is meant to sort of bracket off all the other claims to God's that Israel was constantly encountering around them. Essentially, what we're hearing is this invitation, behold Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is alone, the Lord is one, the Lord is everything, the Lord is ours, right? This is this beautiful, epic, explosive encounter that Israel is invited to say every morning and every evening. Why does this matter? for us, and what does this have to do at all with parenting? Well, I want to suggest that what we find here at the start, this is the key passage that's going to set Israel up for entering the land, how they're supposed to be formed in the faith of God. They are first, before they're invited to do anything else, before they're invited to obey, they are invited to behold. So I'm going to suggest this verse offers us to think, even as parents, think about our own faith, and moving from obeying to beholding from obeying to beholding. Now, if you behold God, like even think about it, right? If you were to start every morning and actually take this verse seriously, like behold, Yahweh is our God, uh, it would start to change and reorient how you move through your day. Uh, It would actually start to draw you into God. It would force all these questions which are still the same questions that the obedience method is trying to enact, like, right? Like, how am I supposed to act in my day? Like, how should I move through these different complex situations I find myself in? But beholding becomes primary, and it actually totally subverts that deism, doesn't it? Like, God is not distant and removed. God is meant to be encountered every day. Um, I love, just practically as a parent, Jenna has been doing a lot of really good work on this. Um, She and I have been dialoguing back and forth. Uh, There's a friend of ours who is on Instagram called Meredith Miller. She's been doing a lot of great work on what it means to approach the Bible with an orientation towards love as opposed to obedience. And she just observes, you know, one of the challenges for most of us is that we go to read the Bible and we're so focused on the human characters because we see ourselves in them. We're like, is that person good? Are they bad? Was that a good decision or a bad decision? Am I good or am I bad? How do I navigate all of these complex things I'm facing in my life? And Meredith suggests, you know, what if when we read the Bible with our kids, we focus instead on the character of God? So every scripture passage is this invitation to behold God, 
Like, yes, it's helpful to talk about Abraham. Like, Abraham has faith. That's good. Uh, But it's probably more helpful to say Abraham is called by God who is good and lovely. God wants to be in relationship with Abraham. You tracking with me? Moving from obeying to beholding, even as we read the Bible. Uh, Let's continue in the passage. This is now the next verse. This verse you've obviously heard before. This is a very famous sort of opening montage uh, that comes across a lot of the rest of the scripture. To just sit with it for a moment, it invites us, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. This is such a simple observation, yet I've been sitting in it all week. Does Deuteronomy begin with the command to obey, or does it begin with the command to love, right? The first commandment. Now, uh, this is what's kind of interesting. If you do a little bit of digging in Deuteronomy, uh, you can go back to the start of Deuteronomy 6, and there's this weird quirk. You could easily miss it if you're reading too quickly. This is Deuteronomy 6.1. I've thrown it up in the NASB because that's very literal. It's this translation that's going to give you the the word for word. And this is what uh, Deuteronomy 6.1 says. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the judgments, which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you so that you may do them. Uh, What's going on here, strangely, grammatically, is that there's going to be all these statutes and judgments, instructions, that Deuteronomy is about to share. But Moses is trying to be really clear that he's about to tell Israel one commandment from which all the other instructions are going to flow. Now here is the commandment. Suddenly, it makes a lot more sense when Jesus, several thousand years later, is going to say this as he is approached by rabbis. Uh, They ask him this question, Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? Now, I always thought Jesus was like mind-blowing. Where does he get this stuff from? You know, like, is he pulling this straight from heaven? How is he so cool? And obviously that can all still be true. Um, But interestingly, as I've been sitting with this passage, uh, Jesus almost uh, condescendingly looks at these rabbis and says, have you not read Moses, right? There's one commandment from which everything else is going to flow. That commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. And of course, the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. But then what does Jesus say? Upon these two commandments hangs all the law and the prophets. Jesus says, get this right in parenting your children, and everything else is going to flow from it right? Obedience is going to come. If you can focus on love, and if you can pursue a love of God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, everything else is going to follow. But if you fail to get this, then you're never going to be able to to last. Like, the faith is just going to start to become burdensome, or moralistic, or therapeutic, and God is just only going to be something you hope matters in your death. What does this look like? as a parent. Well, this is just one practical suggestion. I am working this out actively with Jenna. We are having many conversations. I have none of the permanent solutions that are going to give you everything you need, but we've noticed in trying to move from obeying to loving as the primary motivation of our relationship to our children and our children's relationship to God, what we've noticed is that discipline is very tricky because inevitably we have toddlers right now. Daughter Hazel's four, her son Hazel, uh, Hayden is two. Um, we have to discipline them all the time. They're like constantly up to no good. Uh, literally this morning, 
Hayden chucked uh, his bunny at Hazel, like just pure act of rage and violence that only a two-year-old can muster. Uh, it was clearly vicious, and so we had to discipline him. We had to put him in timeout. But uh, we, we got this somewhat from Super Nanny. If any millennials watch Super Nanny, love Super Nanny. I think Super Nanny was a Christian. That's just my opinion. I have no idea. Um, Super Nanny would do this discipline tactic, uh, tac- tactic uh, that was really oriented on establishing and maintaining love more than it was on enforcing discipline itself. And what she would encourage you to do is that whenever your child did something they weren't supposed to, you'd be really clear. You'd explain to them, this is what you did. Uh, you then would be really consistent So normally uh, you set a timer and you set a timer for how many minutes that child is old and you actually set the timer so that it's not like you just leave the child. You don't like, like they don't have to worry that something crazy is happening this time because they were extra bad, right? If you're bad, here's the consistent discipline. But then the key is always at the end of the discipline to look your child in the eye, to ask them, do you know why you were here? And then to affirm to them, I love you. And for us, we always do it with a hug. So it's like, hey, I want you to know we love you, let's hug, and then the child is allowed to return to whatever it is they're doing. Now, uh, our children are crazy, right? I'm, I'm not suggesting that like, <laughs> they have somehow become super nannied uh, in our home, but what I've really been moved by in this approach is that uh, I have been m- learning so much more about my relationship with God because I have been emphasizing love rather than obedience with my kids, that for me, the craziest moment is at the end of the discipline, you know, it starts, they've got tears, they're like sobbing violently, you'd think they were going to die. Uh, then they sort of settle down and they begin to breathe, and then we have this moment that comes back, it's like, do you know what you did? Okay, yes, that's, that's why you are here. Uh, but then I look at them, and every time I'm like, hey, you know I love you. Like, I love you, Hazel. I love you, Hayden. Can we hug? Let's do a hug, and we reestablish connection. What amazes me is every time, as soon as the hug happens, however violent or exaggerated the tears were, the child is off. It's like pure freedom. After the hug, they just feel so much trust that connection has been restored. It's not like they're lingering, you know, it's not like they're kind of looking at me like, are we good now? Are you sure? Like, is this still okay? Like, am I, should I, should I bring some like money over here or food or like, what do we need to do? Instead, they're just free and they're off to play again. I've been pondering in my own relationship with God. How much did I get off kilter because I felt like God was somehow there to be obeyed rather than God wanting me to be in a relationship of love with God. Okay, here's our last movement. Uh, This is the final verse from this passage. This is verse six. And it says quite simply this, these are the words that I am giving you today that are to be in your hearts. These are the words that I command you today that shall be on your hearts. Um, Here's what I think is going on at the end of this passage, right? If you sit with Moses, you sit with God as he's setting up Israel with this vision, uh, then what we are focused on is that God uh, is going to give us time to work out the love that we are cultivating with God. Think about just the picture that's being given here in verse 6. What we're told is that these words, the commandments to love, are meant to sit with you in your heart. They're meant to linger right there in the center, in the core of who you are. I think what's going on here is that Moses is inviting us to realize that we're really going to leave obedience behind as the primary motivation. Instead, we need to give ourselves time to cultivate trust. We need to move from obeying to trusting. Now, this is the hardest 
instinct I think that a parent is going to have as they work through teaching their children to love more than to obey. Uh, most parents, if we're being honest, and I fully fall into this camp, most parents hope their child obeys them because they want their child to be happy, but they also want their child to be a sort of encouraging or glittering image. Uh, you kind of hope that your kid, uh, there's one of mine, uh, wonderfully crying, you hope that your child is going to extend who you are, look like you want them to look. And instead, the struggle with love is that love may get far, far messier than obedience. In fact, you could say to just demand obedience is easier than it is to ask someone to love God. But if love is going to grow, if love is going to start flowing, if you're going to start helping your child to see that love is the primary motivation and call that God is inviting with their whole lives, it's probably going to take time and trust. Not only trust in your child, right, that your child may make mistakes, but is ultimately going to figure this out, but it's also probably going to take trust in God, if we're being honest, right? That God is going to be good enough to draw your child, that if your child truly beholds God, if your child truly begins to love God, then God will fulfill, God will pull them forward, God will meet them in whatever hardship, in whatever mistakes, in whatever struggle they find themselves in. Here's a story I want to end on this morning. I never thought before about one of the most famous stories Jesus tells as a story about parenting. I've been reflecting all week on the story of the prodigal son, which of course isn't just about one son, there's actually two sons in this story. If you remember, uh, Jesus says, once there was a father with two sons, and one son obeyed always. One son was there, worked the land, he did what the father wanted, he was there, he, he was always present, he was working the land, right? And the other son totally left the father behind. In fact, the son came up and said, I want my inheritance. I want it now. I want to go do my own thing. And the father gives it to him. And then the son goes off and blows it all. But as the son is living far off and has hit rock bottom, right? Sitting with the pigs in the mud, this thought comes into the son's mind. What if my father might actually welcome me back? And the son begins to ponder this plan where he's going to come up with this speech and he's going to come in and work as a servant, quite literally a slave to the father. Like he's going he's to do what it takes because he knows there's something there in his father that is good and that's going to hopefully be able to, to help him in his great need. Well, as you know, the father sees the son from far off. He's been looking for him. And as soon as the son starts walking back, the father pulls up his robes. He runs to the son embraces the son and says, you've come home. Now, the older brother is angry. The obedient brother is upset because they've been obeying this whole time. And now this extravagant welcome and love is offered to somebody who's totally blown it. And yet, as I've been sitting with this, I keep thinking about those of us who worked through the youth group. And I've been thinking about those of us who stuck with it the whole time, right? We, we stayed in the church. We never stopped attending. We were there every week. We set up chairs. We made the coffee. And now we're here. And we're looking at our children. And the temptation in us is, you need to be good too, right? You need to obey just like I obeyed. And yet this story totally blows that open by saying, does the father not love every child 
that comes back to them. Can you trust your children enough to trust that if you show them God, if they can behold God, if they can start to taste what it looks like to love God, then God is going to welcome them when the moment comes. God is going to welcome them whenever they're ready to come home. Let me go ahead and pray for us. God, I know there are, even here in this room, parents who hold their children in their hearts, who have done everything they can, Lord, to work this out as best they can. Just work out what it means to raise, to grow faith, to to care for your kids, to teach them about God. And Lord, I know these parents, for some of them, are waiting, waiting on children to still return home. God, I just pray even this morning that there would be a deep trust for those who are empty nesters, a trust in you. May there be these prayerful tears that we call out to you, God, captivate those kids who have wandered, captivate our friends, Lord, who have wandered far from the church. But Lord, we trust you. We trust you to know that loving you is more important than obeying you. And for those of us who are parents, those of us who are thinking about having kids, those of us who feel in our own lives that draw towards moralism, that draw towards hoping things are going to just be happy all the time. Lord, I pray that we would begin together as a community to learn this far deeper way of love, that we would encourage each other onward in loving God with all our hearts, all our soul, all our strength. And that as we do that, Lord, we might just begin to teach our children as well that loving you is more important than obeying you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.